This is a CQ University Australia podcast, where we talk to some of the university's interesting characters. Today on The Grapevine, we're talking to Professor Lynn Parkinson. Welcome. Thank you. Um, just to start with, we just want to go back a little bit and find out a little bit about your childhood, where you were born um, and where you grew up and family life. What family life was like for you? Oh, my goodness me. That is a long way back, isn't it? Uh, Born in Newcastle, New South Wales, and I suppose spent most of my younger life there. However, interestingly, I started school at Krakow, which is some hours um, southwest of Rockhampton. Um, It's a two-room schoolroom. My dad worked at the Golden Plateau Mine in Krakow, which then closed down, but you, if you go out to visit now, there's, it's actually sort of, it, it was a ghost town for a little bit, but now there's people out there because they've reopened the mine, um, which was just one of the most amazing places to start school at. It was, uh, yeah, I was in a classroom with kids from, yeah, yeah, from just year one to four, and I was doing the year four maths by the time I finished that that first year of, wow. of school. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and then we moved back to... Um, where it was boring and I had to just do like year one work. It was awful. It was so boring. Um, So, yes, that's where I started school. Um, Then I I, I lived down in Newcastle again for quite a while but then came up to live in Murrah, again, a bit southeast of here um, uh, for a couple of years and that's where I I went to to high school for a couple of years there. So I then came back to – went back to Newcastle bit of a theme, came back up to live in Rockhampton about six years ago. So I've I've lived in Queenstown three times within quite a tight triangle of um, places, um, currently living in, in Gladstone, though. Okay. So you were very gifted in maths. Was that... How did that come about? You know, were you tutored early in life? Oh, gosh, no, 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 no. I was never tutored. No, I was always very good at maths. I always understood the language. So, um, yeah, I just, it's it's a language, either you understand it or you don't. So I I was very well at school, but I I was one of those kids that that's what I did. Um, I was a bit boring otherwise. Total, total, just girly swat is what I call them. We call them down south. So... (laughs) So what were you, your interest in high school? So you, where, where did you go to high school again? Uh, I went to a selective high school in Newcastle called Newcastle Girls High. Um, but then I actually came up and went to Maribor Girls High for a little bit, went back and went to Newcastle High again, which had then become a, a co-ed school but not in my year. Um, I was always very, very much uh, interesting. I was into art and science. So I was very good at, I was probably a bit of an all-rounder, so I used to always sort of top the year in art just because I was a bit artistic, did very well at English, but also very, very much physics, chemistry, maths. And so when I left high school, I went and did a science degree because I would have loved to have done art, but in fact, science is where there's money and you can support yourself and art was would have been a bit of a folly, I thought, because I was always a very, you know, that's the way I thought, well, I could do art, that'd be fun. But, um, so yeah, so I did a science degree at Newcastle Uni. Um, I did a science degree there. Okay, so after uni, what did you use your science for then? I went straight after uni. Um, I took a while to, have, to finish uni because I had three children in the middle. So um, at four-year intervals. So I took a very long, <laughs> very long time. Yep. And I had actually had my third child in the first year of my PhD. So I went straight from a science degree. I went and did an honours psychology and straight into a PhD. My goodness. Okay, so how did how did family life 
work around all that. They t- they told me it was pretty awful, but I found it fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's only since that they've gone, Mum. And interesting, I have like I had two older boys, and they went, mm. yeah. I was actually the most mummy like when they were younger, but they don't remember. They just always remember this. PhD that I was always busy at was my daughter who was born during the PhD and her young brother that's all they've ever known and so they think I'm um this is just normal and they're really happy with it but my boys had known a little my older boys had known a little bit different um so it was interesting that 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 I thought oh goodness me but I did stay at home for some of their time and I never stayed at home with the younger ones yet they think I was more more mummy like than the, the the older two do, so it worked okay. I uh, you know I I was always the sort of person like I was I was um, doing a PhD. I was doing a couple of ca- couples couples counselling course. I was doing a ceramics course, and then I got pregnant. And went ah, oh, something has to go. So of course the art went again. How did you eventually get into academia? I sort of just merged into it from the PhD. When you choose yeah. to do a PhD, you oh, really PhD. Yeah. Uh, behavioural science and medicine. So what I did was a, a really big survey of drug use amongst general population. Um, and by drug use, that's illicit drug use, illicit drug use, um, yeah, right across alcohol, smoking. Um, and it was part of the really old the um, national campaign against drug abuse. Yeah. This was a long time ago. Many people won't remember that 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 actual campaign. Um, so, yeah, so that was in, it was about drugs or med- and medicines and then I sort of just sort of fell into a job as a research officer, um, NHMRC research officer with another big project that my supervisor had had been funded for. So when you do a PhD, you, you often are looking at getting into that research sphere and it is sort of a walk into that sort of field. So it was easy to, to get there because um, I was surrounded by a lot of researchers. Okay, so when you've you know you finished your PhD and you went into research, what was that sort of that main sort of projects that you're working on in those times? I was working on a really very large action research project on cancer prevention. So um, we managed to reduce um, adult smoking in rural towns in New South Wales. We increased screening for um, pap smears and um, mammograms. Um, didn't have any effect on adolescent smoking whatsoever. Um, and I think we had a little bit of impact on skin screening, skin cancer, yeah, screening of, yeah, sunscreen use. Um, so yeah, it was, it was in 10, um, New South Wales towns. So it was a very big project to get out there. It's a bit of fun though, because it's, I've always enjoyed going out, out rural places. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, that was, I suppose that was, took about five, six years and, um, after that, I, I actually became employed in the area health service down there. So I became a, a health service manager for about five years. So I sort of stepped out of academia, but not really, because academia it sort of followed me. I was still was doing papers and research as well as evaluation. So, But I had that nice experience of really sort of being embedded in the health service. Okay. So uh, how long then did it take you to end up at Suki University? Took me quite a while from there. I have to say that, that around about that time when I, after I'd been a health service manager, I 
became aware of aging as a research area. So what I would say I had a mid-career change to become what we call a gerontologist, which is a researcher in aging. Um, and I, that's, that's, that's my love now and that's what I do is research in aging. I don't it, it, it can be about anything, but it's got to be about ageing, about older people. And so that's that's when I went back to a university-type position and that lasted – I was there for about 10 years, so this is this is what I did. And after that, that's actually when I saw the opportunity for um, the position I came to at CQU, which is a research capacity building capacity. Uh, um, position that I came to and I was really suited to that because it's what I'd been doing down in Newcastle for a while. I um, I was a deputy director of a research centre down there and I um, capacity built early career researchers. Okay. Can you tell us about your role here? Yeah, it was really interesting. I, I came here to um, be part of the Health Collaborative Research um, Network, which was a, was a, a, a collaboration between Curt and QUT UQ and CQU, where we looked at people who research active and um, encouraged, I suppose, more research activity, um, increase in grant activity and increase in um, paper writing. And it was just, I suppose, look, I, I think it was fairly successful, but I have to say that it, it really was building on what was already happening in people's brains at CQU at the time. So there was already some strong leadership um, around increasing research capacity. So over the last six years, CQ has really just blossomed in research. So I think that that has happened. I think we had a small part to play in that, but I think there was a wider just acceptance of research at CQ more. So I'm I'm pretty pleased with where research has gone in the last few years here. And what are the projects that you've worked on? while you've been at CQ? Well, I do a lot of work with industry. So I'm always do what I call real-world research. I like to be really, I suppose, based in the real world. Um, so I, I've done a lot of um, – I did some I, – I actually started quite a while ago to look at social isolation, which my latest project sort of comes from, and working with a, an industry partner, um, Prescare organisation. Uh, I went sort of to Cairns and Mackay and, and around Rocky, and I interviewed people. Um, oh, and Meribah as well. So interviewed people about uh, who were socially isolated, who were community care recipients from this organisation and had a talk about what, what their concerns were. Um, so that was – I found that really interesting. But then we also um, – with, with with Trudy Dwyer over at Nursing, um, we started some work around subacute care in aged care facilities. So what that's about is, is – um, an aged care facility is not a hospital, but they can pick up when something's going wrong with a resident and do something about simple about that so they don't end up in hospital. Because mm-hmm. when a when a resident goes to hospital, it's, there's many ramifications. They often get sicker. It causes distress to them and their family and also their caregivers at the, at the facility. So there's sometimes you need to avoid it. When it's something simple like they've got a urinary tract infection where if we can identify that, they can have antibiotics, um, if they've just got, um, yeah, sometimes, yeah, so that's, yeah, there's a few different things that they can get which are, which is subacute and they could be dealt with mm. in, that, yeah. So it would be about trying to keep them in their, their, the residence that they're in rather than burdening 
both the hospitals and themselves in that sort of... Yeah, it's keeping them home, as their carers call it. So it's keeping them at home. Yeah, because the the facility is their home. So keeping them at home rather than taking them out to hospital. And we looked at... What what we actually had a look at was a quite aged care-driven project. So we... um, we didn't develop the actual program, the aged care facility did, and we evaluated it. We then got some more funding and we um, we tried it again in another facility to see if it still worked. That that project needs to go further. Need, we need to actually take that out to a few more facilities and see if it can work in a few more facilities. Aged care like it because it's been developed in aged care, so it's more suited. It's not one of those ones that's been sort of developed by researchers and parachuted in. So there's a lot of different models, but this one we think because it's got that that aged care driven flavour to it might be a little bit more acceptable and more, I suppose, scalable in the world. Um, Your latest project is also to do with aged care in in a way. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, um, well, it is aged care services. So, yeah, what we're doing is um, the project's called Caring for Carers. And what what our actual mission is for this this latest project is to connect carers of people with dementia with other carers of people with dementia. And it is a service in a way. It's a free series of um, six chat sessions where a group of people who care for people with dementia, say six to eight people, are joined with a facilitator at the the head of it um, to talk about issues around caring and looking after yourself in the caring role. How does that actually work? Um, how it works is it's 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 interesting because it's it's video conferenced. So we're really after those isolated people who are finding it more difficult to get. I mean, there's there's programs out there um, and there's a couple of difficulties with those. First, if you're in a very isolated area, you can't get to them. Second, if you're just isolated by being um, immobile, you can't get to them or by by that feeling that you can't leave the house without the person you're caring for and they're not well suited to having the other person, the person you're caring for around. Um, so it's those isolated people having trouble getting to those more conventional meet face-to-face type groups or other, um, other, I suppose, education opportunities. We're not an education opportunity. We are a connection opportunity. And we're very clear about that. Um, Dementia Australia and those sort of organisations do a great job with the education projects and programs, and we're not trying to duplicate anything that anyone else is doing. And, in fact, we're very clear to people saying that they need to still keep on doing everything else they're doing and we're just something extra. We, we think there's a gap there and we think that this is this is a need for people who are isolated to just have that connection. When you look after a person with dementia, it's really easy to let connections go. It's easy to stop looking after yourself, to, to focus mainly on the person you're caring for and see that as your whole role. But it's really important for when you – this is a role that is not forever – and you will come out the other side after a fair bit of grief, I have to say. Um, but you you will need to have looked after yourself to come out the other end feeling okay. And that's what these groups are about. It's about supporting how the person is caring now and then their tra- transition into a role which is not a carer. So, I mean, it's carers talking to other carers about their challenges. What are some of the main challenges that they face? Well, navigating the healthcare system is always um, a bit difficult and that's there's going to be a lot of chat about that. Um, how we developed the topics was that um, our main facilitator, Dr Annie Banbury, got together with a, a group of, of carers and said, so 
work through a, a, a nice co-design process and, and basically going, so what do we need to talk about? What is it that people need to talk about? So it's interesting. It's a very different group, um, set of, of topics than what perhaps Annie would have come up with, but it's very much based in what the carers felt they needed. So grief came up. The, I mean, grief, and it's not just grief when the person actually passes. It, it's a succession of grieving because you lose the person as you go. You lose your family member, your friend as you go, your spouse as you go. Um, as I said, navigating the healthcare system, it's changing all the time. And it's very much, and this is interesting because we're, we're talking about a technological solution, but getting accessing the system and, and services is very much getting more technological. You actually have to get onto the website and that's where you find all your information. So it's, it's important that people... Yeah, uh, a little bit more digitally friendly, I guess, so that they can do that. Because sometimes, what, what's actually happened when we were talking to the the co-design, we call it that co-design group, when we were developing the program, some people give up. They get a part of the way and they give up. And just hear that someone else has gone, oh yeah, I got there, and then I went and did this, and this is how you actually do get this to happen. That's very powerful. It's really powerful. So when a person's having an issue as well, it's it's different having someone who's a peer say, well, this is how you might handle it, than having someone who hasn't had that similar experience. So those those solutions, those are, well, I had that happen here and I did this. Um, or being able to say, look, I'm having this problem. So talking to people who've, um, who are in that co-design group, um, they were pretty pleased that it actually it was the fact that they were developing the program, but also that people are at different different stages of the caring process. So there's people who are looking after people who've only just been diagnosed. There's people who are looking after people who are what we would call in a palliative um, stage. So those learnings, those different experiences along the way, it's nice to hear how people coped. People have, have, have done this before. Um, when you're isolated, it's easy to think that you haven't this has never happened to anyone before and it's happening to me because I'm I'm not doing this well. Can you, just for our listeners, can you explain a little bit about what the carers would be going through with people with dementia? Not everyone has been touched by dementia. Mm, can mm. you explain that a little? Um, I can, but it is a really individual experience and it depends on the, the type of dementia. So uh, people, um, I suppose, deteriorate at different different rates so it can start with just um, I, I, I can talk from experience I, my mother had dementia and I, I lost her to dementia so in my experience just to start with just little things seemed not quite right um, she was always the, the sharpest pencil in the pack and suddenly she was just a little bit blunt and then 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 she sort of got that I go no actually that's completely wrong what is what's wrong and I would have noticed that there's something, I thought there's something wrong probably about three years before my older sister did. And um, just because that, that dynamic of older sister to younger sister, she's like, oh, yeah, of course there's nothing wrong. Yeah. What do you mean? And I'm like, oh, no, she thinks I'm being mean. I'm not being mean. She always thinks I'm mean. I'm not mean. Um, but that's older sister, you know. Um, so I um, I said, well, I think, yeah, and she's gone. Oh. And then three years later, she's gone, oh, Lynn, there's something wrong. <laughs> But I, I work in the area, I could tell. And then it became really obvious as she really she was started having hallucinations, things were happening that weren't. How old was she? She was actually quite young. She was um, about 63. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm currently 58, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's, that was actually what you would call early onset. If, if it comes on before 65, it's it's considered early onset. Yeah. Um, she was very young. Um, uh, and she lived a while after that, though. But, um, yeah, so so that was that, that sort of like you could really tell something was wrong. And then there was hallucinations. There was just, just um, a little bit of paranoia. Um, and she was living with two of my sisters and they eventually found they couldn't cope. Okay. She, was, she was always a tiny bit belligerent. She was a short woman you need to be careful of. And, um, yeah, but she got worse. She was just, she got quite belligerent and she, she was difficult to cope with. So, um, so that's, that, I suppose, what they, they call that, you know, behavioural and psychological symptoms of dementia. So verbal abuse, maybe hitting out, that sort of stuff, and just unco- lack of cooperation. Um, it took quite a while until she didn't know who people were, but she did get the. She, it, funnily enough, she always knew my children, and she knew her great granddaughter, but she didn't. I, I, she didn't know who I was. She think I thought I was her niece or maybe her auntie. And one of my funniest stories about when she was in a in in um, a facility, I went to see her, and she's gone. Um, she's gone. Oh, this is my niece. I said, oh, I'm, I'm your daughter, and she just looked at me. She's gone. You're very old. I said, yes, darling, and so are you. Charming. <laughs> well, you've got it. I mean, I thought that was gorgeous. I thought it was lovely. So there, we had some very lovely conversations where it didn't make a lot of sense. But, yeah, a really important thing with someone who has dementia, you don't challenge their view of the world. What's the point of that? You just get them upset. So often just playing along with what she was she was saying, which is what I or often what I did. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. So so it's a changing thing, and as they progress, they become different things happen. Okay. Yeah, they. Yeah. So your sisters were her carers. Yeah, they were. Yeah. yeah. So how did they cope? They cope quite well for quite a while, um, and then they they just came along to me and said, "Lynn, I can't do it anymore," and. Um, and I said, well, we'll have to get her into a facility if you can't do it anymore. They just, she just, I mean, accusing them of stealing stuff, making up, just thinking stories that weren't real um, and became quite difficult for them. And they um, they were never the most resilient people either. And I would have loved to have taken her, but I was working full time and I have four children. Mm-hmm. And I just, it wasn't possible. And also I had a bit of a responsibility from one of my grandchildren as well. So I had her with me a lot. So yeah, it was, um, yeah, they, it was, I think it was difficult most of the time for them. So was this a definitely a, a trigger for you to research this area? Or did, uh, it, did it just happen that way? I, I tried to stay away from it, but but it, it is actually, I suppose, because it is such a big public health issue. Um, it, it sits where where I suppose my research sits because it is. I mean, when you start looking at social isolation, you start looking at people who are more likely to be isolated. And this group of carers of people with dementia, they have many things isolating them. They have stigma of, of the the stigma of the person with dementia. They um, they have that that overwhelming feeling that they can't leave the person, and they get more difficult to take them out. So it's fine in the early stages. You can continue as normally as you like and that's really important to continue with normal normal behavior and normal outings but like I saw still take my mum for for drives until she couldn't handle driving it just became frightening Mm -hmm. for her to be in a car so it it comes to a point where they don't want to go outside anymore and that's got to be guided by what they want Mm -hmm. Um, and then the person who's caring feels they can't go out either and there's a lack of asking for a spite 
in Australia. People don't ask for that enough because there's a guilt. There's always a guilt with this this sort of thing. The, there's a guilt around um, letting the, 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 the person down. How common is dementia in Australia? Well, um, I was reading this morning that globally um, one person, a person gets dementia every 80 seconds. Um, I think it's about... Um, I did have some figures on that, and my apologies that I didn't. What I can tell you is that by um, 2025, we will need 250,000 informal carers. Currently, we've got about 144,000 informal carers. I can also tell you that people tend to think that people with dementia are in facilities, aged care facilities, and that is not correct. 92% of people in Australia with dementia live at home. So they've got people who care for them informally. They may also have formal care, but I think people, people, most people I hope, hope know that formal care is a day a week, maybe two days a week. It's never more than that an hour here or there, and it's quite focused on, you know, self-care or cleaning the house, that sort of thing, getting food to the person. So 92% of people with dementia have been cared for by an informal carer. These people are irreplaceable. We could not afford to replace them. So we really need to look after them. We need to support them as much as we can. We need to make sure that they stay connected with the world because that's a lot of people to not be connected with the world. At this point in your research, you're looking to get people involved in the project. So you're looking for carers that yep. would like to participate. Yep. So how do they get in touch with you and... Um, how does that work from now? Well, there's a, there's a few different ways. In fact, we've tried to make it as easy as possible. So we've got a phone number, which is 0437-579-695. We have um, an email address you can send to, which is carers at cqu.edu.au. And we also have a Facebook account. And if you just search for Caring for Carers, you will find us. Um and we will do have a website which is attached to the CQ University website as well. So, so if you basically, I think if you go in and put carers in there, you you will find us. Um, also, my name. If you look at my name, the, uh, there will be a link. Um, but definitely use the the phone number or the the email. Most people are contacting us, ta- contacting us by email, which is interesting. It's so simple: carers at cqu.edu.au. Yeah. Awesome. Um, now, you, we were talking before and you mentioned that you're willing to do anything to get carers on board, travel out west and yep. recruit them in your RV. Yep. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, so I, I'm actually going to go and do a bit of a road show. Uh, we, we've already done an event down at Harvey Bay. We're going to do a couple more of those. We're going to have an event in Rockhampton um, the 20th to 21st of no, 20th, 20th, 2021-22 of August, which coincides with Seniors Week. We're going to do an event in Cairns, which coincides with Dementia Awareness Week, which is 10, 11, 12 September. But in, the, in, in between times, I'm going to go around and just visit communities because I know that there's there's places where there's not an, not enough sort of, I suppose, networks there for people to hear about it. So I want to go to the RSL Club. I want to go and put up some posters in the shopping centre. I want to go to the community centre and make sure there's a poster, talk to people there if I can. So I'll be setting up some, some dates along the way and I'll, I've got my RV and I'm out there. 
and you'll be able to see me. I'm going to have some stickers on the side that say who I am and I'd like people to come up and talk to me when I'm out there. I'll be fairly recognisable, I think. You're obviously very passionate about your research. <laughs> I am very passionate and I'm really prepared to put myself out there to try and connect with these people because I, I really think that we can help. I know we can help and it's such a gap. Uh, and and I, I also know that, that yeah, some people are, are a little bit turned off by the fact that it's technology. It's really simple technology. Um, but I, I'm, I'm prepared to, to sort of bridge that technology by being there face-to-face so they can hear about it face-to-face and then I can uh, connect them. Looking into the future, what um, is there other research opportunities for you or what have you got plans over the next five years? Well, I think this is a, a really important project. It's just the start of this particular um, project, I guess. this we'd, we'd probably call this a pilot, and I, I really think this needs to go into a dissemination stage. We wouldn't do that alone. We're looking for partners. So people like um, Dementia Australia, I've been talking to them to say, look, this is this is something that could go further. We, we could really – it needs to be – while we can – while we can – talk to say 200 people and try to make it sustainable really we need to talk to 200,000 people or we need 200,000 people talking to each other we've already been asked so why not in metro so we're concentrating on rural regional at the moment and I said well it would work really well there but we've identified that there's a real need out in rural regional whereas and I know that metro people would probably jump at it so, so there we could go into the, the, the rural regional. Setting up um, this sort of thing for people who have non-English speaking backgrounds or who can't talk English, it, there's a lot, of, a lot of scope there. People who are from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background, making it culturally appropriate for them. So that's the sort of things we're thinking about. Um, this has got a long way to go yet, I think, and I, I think it's got a lot of promise, not just for um, people who care for those with dementia but other people as well. As I said, we've tried, we've tried, done this sort of thing with people with chronic disease and that's that's worked really well. So there, there's all sorts of connections that could be made. I mean, you obviously spend a lot of time doing this work. How do you fit your, you know, your outside of work life around all this? Uh, I'm not actually dreadfully good at that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I am. I mean, like, I, I just like, I... I mean, a, this is not the only project I'm working on. Let's, yeah. let's put it that way. I'm, I'm still doing a lot of work around medicines use, so and particularly um, medicines use by people with dementia. Okay. So I've got I'm on a big NHMRC grant about that, um, and that's sort of that won't be starting probably till later this year. We're doing a pilot first with um, which is also funded by RACGP, um, the Royal Australian College of General Practice. Okay. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I I take Saturday off. Okay. <laughs> what do you do for fun? Oh, I like to go to markets. Mm-hmm. Are you still dabbling in art? Not at the moment because my art stuff is all packed away. But yes, I I, I I'm just stopping myself from buying more art gear because I've got so much, but it's packed away at the moment. But I'll get back into it soon. Okay. I like to take photographs too, and I actually love to travel okay. so the RV thing is a little bit of fun oh, I love to travel good. in western places as well so yeah and uh, we were talking earlier about um, you ha- are heading to Belgium um, I've been asked by the European um, Commission to go over and sit on a panel to um, review grants so it sounds sounds like money for jam but it's hard work okay 
really hard work. <laughs> We've found out a lot about you, Lynn, but is there anything quirky or have you got any interesting habits or anything like that that we might not know? Um, I'm a speed reader. How about that? A speed reader? Yeah, yeah. Naturally, I always, always just read very, very quickly. So I, I never have a fiction books. I just go and they're gone. And I, it's irritating. I could never have enough fiction books. Have you got um, some favourites? Oh, I do love Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Margaret Atwood is one of my very favourite more modern authors. Awesome. So would that have, speed reading, would that have made school and university stuff Easier, easier, yeah. And do you absorb what you read? I usually do, but I have to say it works better with fiction. The non-fiction stuff sometimes, like everybody else, I go, this is a bit boring. But I am a very quick reader, yeah. It helps if you're an academic. If you you aren't, you probably need to learn to be. Like this podcast? Don't forget to rate, review and share with your friends.